the chief occupation of humanity. That's a fancy way of saying, what's the most important thing any one of us ought to be doing in our lives? Well, the chief occupation of humanity is that we were designed to be those who praise and glorify God. Anything else that you do is secondary to that call to praise and to glorify God. This is your purpose. This is why you were created. There is no more higher calling than this. There is no more noble task than this. Nothing that ultimately fulfills the heart of man is that like praising and glorifying God. The great reformer John Calvin noted, the most holy service that we can render to God is to be employed in praising his name. We could stop there and do an entire sermon challenging ourselves that in everything, the most holy service is to be employed in praising his name. And you have the privilege of taking that task wherever and doing it whenever you go. Wherever you go, you can praise the Lord. Whatever you do, you can praise the Lord. It's not one of these things that I have to, you get to, you ought to, for sure. There's nothing more sacred. There's nothing more God-exalting. There's nothing more life-fulfilling than the offering of praise and thanksgiving to God. But I fear that some of us might at times forget that. And we focus on that which we do not have. And we focus on things as they seem in this world. And we forget that this is but temporary. We have such a short time on this earth. As I've been a grandfather now for six times, and I know there's those that have a lot more than that, but six times a grandfather and noticing that my, my oldest grandson is, well, he's getting older. And he's getting older faster than I can even imagine. And I remember thinking about my children when they were in their teens and, and thinking about my son and thinking, I only have a few short years left with this young man before he goes off and, and does what God has called him to do in the world. And it has gone by so quickly. If we start focusing on the temporal, we will be discouraged. We will be in dismay. Nothing will fulfill us in this life, not the raising of our children, not the, the strength of our marriage, not how fat a 401k might be. The only thing that will fulfill the heart of man is the offering of praise and thanksgiving to God. To be employed in such praise requires a couple of things. First, it requires a heart that knows God. You cannot praise God if you do not know him. The, no, the better we come to know him, the better we praise him. A second thing it requires is a determined obedience, a resolve to do everything we can to give God praise and glory. Particularly, you know where the challenge is? It's when things are going absolutely rotten. To be able to get down on your knees and say, thank you, Lord, as difficult as my circumstances are, I will give you praise because you are my God and that you have promised to deliver me out of the temporal of this world into the everlasting bliss of your life, of, of your heaven. 
We must be resolved then to do everything we can to give praise and thanks to God. Because of sin, we do battle with a threefold enemy, correct? The enemy, the world, this world system, the flesh, our own selfishness, and of course the devil or Satan himself. And do you realize that any one of these who is in opposition to us is enough to destroy your ability to praise? Put all three together, and you have a praise-killing machine that is out to get you. Therefore, this virtue of gratitude, expressed first to God, but then also extended to others, I believe is most worthy of our attention. The Christian is to cultivate gratitude from beginning to end. There's never a time when you just leave it alone. I have some bees at my house. I have two hives of bees. And, and sometimes I just, I just leave them alone and they do what they do and they make honey. And you go in there and you look and it's just dripping with honey. You just do what you do. But when you cultivate gratitude, you don't ever leave it alone. Everything is after it. Every sinful weed, every uh, uh, opponent is after this virtue of gratitude. And so you cultivate it like a good gardener from beginning to end. You keep it as it's a seedling and, you, and you, put the, you put the right fertilizers on it and you keep it watered and you keep the bugs off of it. Gratitude is to be planted, it is to be watered, it is to be dressed, and it is to be harvested. To offer up gratitude to God is at the very heart of what it means to be a created, finite, fallen, redeemed, and sustained being by the grace of God. You know nothing of the greatness of God until you begin to express more thankfulness to God. Throughout the Old Testament, and particularly the Psalms, gratitude, which is the sincere offering of thanks to God, is seen as the appropriate response of his people concerning all the gracious acts for which he has bestowed upon us. There's not one thing that God has done for which you ought not to say, thank you, Lord. The more one sincerely is thankful to God, the more one understands the grace of God, the more gratitude flows from the heart. Gratitude, beloved, is the recognition of the grace of God in your life. And the more you recognize God's grace in your life, the more gratitude you will express. As we have been studying the letter of Jude and how he has expressed to believers to stand against apostasy, the temptation to fall away from the truth of God, another such weapon in the arsenal is that of daily giving thanks to God for all that he has done. It provides for us a hedge against idolatry and sinful self-righteousness. The Apostle Paul expressed this truth to his young preacher friend Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4. Notice what Paul writes. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You can find those on on social media, by the way. And by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be what? Gratefully shared in in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it was received with what? Gratitude. 
All things that God has given are for us to enjoy and then to reflect back gratitude. Believers are not simply called to be thankful to God in all things. They are called rather to express thankfulness in all things as their default. It is to become instinctual for us. It is to be our response and our reaction. One notable example of such a thankful personality is a young woman by the name of Anne Steele. She lived in 1717 through 1778. Anne encountered one trial and disappointment after another. Yet, being a devout Christian, she continuously sought to praise God, even in her sorrow. Well, how difficult did Anne's life get? Well, she was, to be in, uh, she was engaged to be married, and like all brides, she looked forward to her wedding day with great eagerness. The big day arrived. All the guests were there and seated. She was there at the chapel ready to be married. There was just one person missing, the groom. About an hour after waiting at the altar with now everybody whispering and murmuring what's taking place, a messenger brought some news, tragic news. Anne's fiancé had drowned. The sudden shock was almost too much for her, and she ran to a room in tears. But after she regained her spiritual composure, she later wrote some words in a journal and some of these have turned into hymns that you can find today. Listen to what she wrote. Father, whate'er of earthly bliss thy sovereign will denies, except at thy throne of grace let this petition rise. Give me a calm, a thankful heart from every murmur free. The blessings of thy grace impart and make me live. To thee. Now, can you imagine pinning such words after such a tragedy? Oh, that we would have that constant prayer on our lips. Give me a calm, thankful heart from every murmur free. How many of you murmur? How many of you pray this prayer? The prayer, the blessings of thy grace impart and make me live to thee. Such is the heart that seeks God. Such is the heart that knows God. Such is a heart that wants God. Such is a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude. And such a heart belongs not to just a few of God's children. It belongs to every one of us in this room who have professed with our mouth, confessed with our mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. The call is to be thankful, filled with hearts of gratitude. And it's easy to, be, to say that, isn't it? I tell you, be thankful. Be more thankful. Just go and be thankful. But I promise you're going to have a problem with that. Something's going to happen today. Something's going to happen tomorrow. You're going to stub your toe, and you're going to murmur. Like, who put that there? It's harder to express gratitude, it's easy to grumble. It is more often our experience, is it not, to whine than to worship? The problem is that being thankful does not come naturally to our flesh. To be thankful, especially thankful to God in all circumstances, takes constant effort, determination, and commitment. 
in the letter to the Romans, Paul but all plainly states that ingratitude, the attitude and actions of being thankful, uh, thankless, is actually an atheistic heart. In other words, when we fail to give thanks, we are actually acting like practical atheists, and Christians can look like atheists. Did you know that? When we are not thankful, we are practicing atheism. In Romans 1, 18 through 21, we read, For the wrath of God, his, his anger against sin, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who seek to suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Don't let anybody tell you they, they don't believe there's a God. They do. They're just suppressing the truth. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, there's that statement again, they know God, they did not honor him as God or what? What does it say, people? They did not give thanks to him. They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. You fail to thank God, and you become a fool. You fail to thank God on a daily basis, and you are darkening your own heart. The first step towards atheism, living as if there is no God, is this failure to express gratitude. And while it may seem to be a simple question, let me ask you to honestly consider whether or not you regard yourself then as a thankful person. How do you treat God? Think about that. How do you treat God when it comes to the events and circumstances of your life? When things are good, do you sincerely drop down on your knees and say, thank you, Lord, for all of your blessings? And when things are bad, do you drop down on your knees and sincerely thank him for being your God to see you through? We can give lip service to the idea of the Lord being first. We can say that he's supreme in our lives. We refer to him as the honored guest at our tables, in our homes, and certainly in our worship. But how often is it that we might offer him nothing more than a routine gift? We sing to him a select few songs sometimes without much thought, and then totally neglect him in favor of something or so something else or someone else? Could it be that we too often simply leave Jesus out of our lives without a twinge of conscious, consciousness, unconcerned about our own insensitivity, and somehow convinced that we have been faithfully we have faithfully fulfilled our responsibilities to God and we've rightly demonstrated a heart of thankfulness, but are you truly thankful? I just asked, do you know that you're a thankful person? Does your family know that you're a thankful person? Do they, do they go around saying, man, dad is the most thankful person I know. Wow, my child is one of the most thankful children I know. <coughs> that's, that guy at, that's at church, he's the most thankful guy I, I know. Well, this Thursday is Thanksgiving Day, a day originally set apart by our nation to acknowledge the providence of God with gratitude. But not only as our nation uh, still has this on its books, this expectation of expressing gratitude to God, God's book carries the same expectation that we ought to have gratitude to God. 
Most of us are aware that scripture calls believers to be a thankful people. We've read it so many times, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, the famous verse, right? In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What is God's will for your life right now? When you are in the mopes, what's God's will for you? To give thanks. When you are in the highest of heights, what is God's will for you? To give thanks. And when you're just living out what seems to be the routine mediocrity of life, what is God's will for you? How are you doing? How are you doing? Ephesians 5.20, we read that God's people are always, are to always be giving thanks to, for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Because of the goodness and grace of God in saving us from our sins, we are told in Colossians 2.7 that we are to be overflowing with gratitude. Now, now just stop there. That's a command. You are to be overflowing with gratitude. Does that describe you? Can I take a straw poll? No, I won't take a straw poll. Overflowing. You're oozing with gratitude. According to Colossians 2.17, we are told, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Everything you do. I know some of the uh, ladies and some of the men uh, helped one of our members this week, and one of the testimonies, I think, was this, uh, a heart of thankfulness for the opportunity to be able to serve this member and to serve with others in getting in, in helping this particular member. That's a fulfillment of the verse that was up there just a moment ago. We're a ways away from that. So. How about it? Do those verses describe you? I'm taking a long time just to get to the main text because I want you to really think about what God's word has said to us. And I'm preaching to myself. Does this describe you? Are you truly a thankful child of God? Are you known to others as a thankful person? When was the last time you expressed thankfulness in a deep, meaningful, tangible way that really revealed your own heart to God and to others that you are grateful? Is this kind of gratitude the rule of your life, or does it seem to be more the exception to the rule? I know that for most of us, it is not a matter of wanting to. We all desire to be more thankful to God. But are you thankful? And to whatever degree that you are thankful, do you believe that you could be even more thankful than you currently are? It's like, how many of you want to pray more? You say, yes. I got, how many of you could pray better? Yes. How many of you want to be thankful? Yes. How many of you could be more thankful? Yes. Well, how do we get it? Well, in our text this morning, yes, I got to the text. We find David offering up to the Lord what is a hymn of thanksgiving, a short and simple declaration of three things. We see David's resolve, we see David's reasons, and we see David's request to be a thankful person. I love the last one. We see his resolve, his reasons, and then he says to God, you've got to help me be this thankful person because I can't generate it myself. We're going to see again that this would be our prayer, that we would resolve to be thankful, that the reasons that David gives might become our reasons to be thankful so that we might ask ourselves, do I thank the Lord for these things even as he did? And then that we might request even as David did 
that he would overcome our own shortcomings and, uh, and that we would become this thankful person. It's my hope that by looking at such things, they will, these will serve as a springboard for you to share with family and friends your own thankfulness to God, particularly when you're around a table and maybe there's unbelievers at your table. And it doesn't have to be that there's unbelievers there. You have believers at your table that need to know that you are thankful to God. So we'll look at this and we'll look first at our first point, the resolve to be thankful. In verses 1 and 2, the resolve to be thankful. David writes, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple. And so what I would have you note from the text is what I call David's resolve. And I love the determination that is so clearly revealed to us in the three I wills of David's opening salvo. Did you catch them? I will give thanks, I will sing praise, and I will bow down. You want a simple uh, resolve by which you might uh, work towards being more thankful? Well, there it is. Give thanks. I determined to do that. I will sing God's praises. I will bow down. Well, let's look at these resolves one by one. First, I will give you thanks. The verb translated give you thanks is sometimes translated as praise. I will praise you. So thanksgiving and praise are somewhat interchangeable. In other words, to praise the Lord is to thank the Lord, and to thank the Lord is to praise the Lord. The verb speaks of, listen, a confession. It speaks of exposing uh, and exposing of that which was in the hands as an offering or a gift. If I were to surprise my wife with a, a beautiful amethyst ring, because she loves purple, so I got a beautiful amethyst ring. The idea here of, of give has the idea that it's in my hands and I'm about to open up my hands and reveal it, and she's going to take it. That's the idea here that, that uh, I open my hands so that she might see what I'm offering her as my gift. Beloved, our thanksgiving is to be so purposely conceived, thought out, and then brought before our God. It shouldn't be willy-nilly, haphazard. It shouldn't be I just show up to church and now I'm trying to figure out what should I be thankful for. Like me picking out a, a ring for my, my wife and I, and I cup it in my hands or I put it in a box and then I have it opened up for her. You should be coming before God with something prepared, something that you know God, uh, that God has done in your life or that you are thankful to God and you're about to open it up as an offering of praise. Beloved, it should not be muddled. It should be clear. It is to be praised. It is to be something that's openly confessing the goodness of God. And notice that it's not abstract. It's not nebulous. It's not an undefined giving of thanks. So many people are going to sit around a table and do one of the most can I say it this way? The most dumb things I could ever imagine, they're going to say, well, I'm thankful for this, and I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful for this, and they never ascribe to whom they're thankful to. You're just nebulous out there. That's not being thankful. You need to own up and say, from whom are these blessings? David does not say in this text, I will give, uh, I will give you thanks uh, uh, he doesn't say, I will give thanks. He rather specifically says, I will give you thanks. 
He's very definitive. I'm going to go straight to the source. I'm going to identify the one from whom all these blessings flow. It is directed to God. It is purposely acknowledging God's person. And you do no greater uh, uh, act of, if I can get my act, I'm falling apart here. Thank you, Lord. Oh, man. Okay. Let's see if that works. It is purposely acknowledging God's person. You are saying, I want you, God, to know that this is for you. We might paraphrase David's thought here as this. I will openly confess the goodness of who you are and what you have done. I will openly confess the goodness of who you are and what you have done. And notice the qualifier attached, that this open confession of God is not done thoughtlessly, again, not done haphazardly. It is not done simply on the spur of the moment. It is not passionless. It is actually said to be with what? All my heart. Oh, that's a, that is an abused term, right? You say, you know, I really like this with all my heart. There's ultimately only one thing that you give all of your heart to, and that's to the Lord. And that's what David is saying here. This praise, this offering of thanks, this recitation of God and his goodness and his person and his actions, they're going to come from the whole depth of my being. The word all speaks of every area of the heart, or symbolically speaking, every aspect of David's life is now resolved to be given over to this purpose of confessing the greatness of God in his life. I cannot stress enough how important this is. We need to be known as a people who are constantly confessing, giving thanks to God for all of his greatness. It did not matter if David was a lonely shepherd out in the middle of a field. His resolve was to confess, to render an accounting of who God is. It did not matter if David was soon to be king. His resolve was to declare the glories of God. And so it ought to be the resolve of everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord that our lives, whether we are a student, whether we are a financial advisor, a nurse, a housewife, whatever it may be, to give our resolve to give the Lord every area of our life, our hearts, our minds, our wills, so that every faculty of our being is being used to accomplish this task of giving thanks to God. I will give you thanks with all my heart. Well, note the second phrase. This confession doesn't happen in a vacuum. This is not a closet prayer. This isn't something that you just say, I don't want anybody else to know how devoted I am to God. This is out there, people. And how do we know it's out there? Well, this next resolve, David says, I will sing praises to you before the gods. Again, let's consider the first action, I will sing praises. We know that David was a, was a gifted man in writing music, and evidently he might have had a decent voice. He probably, probably had a decent voice. We know that he played instruments, but we also see in David's life a willingness to sing and declare God's worth in and by song. Whether he played God a hymn of praise, we uh, uh, 
played a, a, a hymn of praise to, to King Saul or sang in victory over the Philistines or simply offered to God this hymn of praise, we know that David's music was often before others. David was unashamed to sing songs of praise to his God. I have a, 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 a piece of art in my house, and some of you know it, and it simply says this in nice, frilly uh, font. Real men sing real loud. When you sing, oh, for a thousand tongues, man, I don't care if there's only 30 of us in here. It should sound like a thousand tongues. Real men sing real loud. And that's kind of the, the desire here. I will sing praise. I will sing praise to you. But the text is a little bit ambiguous. It says, I will sing praise, sing praises to uh, to you before the gods. The word gods here is the translation of the Hebrew word Elohim. You might be familiar with that. That's often translated as God, meaning the supreme being, speaking of Yahweh, the Lord. Sometimes the word in context refers to the angels of God, and sometimes, given the context, the word can be translated as the strong or the mighty ones. And it is in this last idea that I, I take it in this context that David is resolved not simply to speak praises to God before God, not that he's simply willing to speak praise, sing praises to God before the angels, but he's willing to sing the praises of God even before the mightiest men of earth. And let me just try to illustrate it this way. Can you imagine meeting the President of the United States and after the greeting and you say, hello, you break out in a praise song. You might say, whoa, that would be weird. David saying, I will sing praises before the most mighty of men. David's not ashamed to lift up his voice and praise to God. How about you? I know that some can get embarrassed about singing, about singing before others, but whether David had a good voice or not, he was determined to sing praises before others. If these gods happened to refer to angels, I doubt that David could, uh, could hold his own against an angelic choir. So if he was saying, I will sing praises before the angels, he, uh, he's like, I don't care. I know the angels sing better than me. You're still going to hear me utter praises to God in song. There's nothing stopping David. And there ought to be nothing that stops us. I often, uh, I, I don't know what people think, uh, I say people, I don't know what my mother-in-law thinks her room is uh, just a little bit over. And there's oftentimes I find myself, I'm humming a hymn or I start singing out some words and I can get kind of loud sometimes. And, and uh, I'll start whistling a song and I just, if she's walking by, it's like, he's at it again. But that should be, what people say, there he goes again, there she goes again, singing praises to her God. I mean, just read the Psalms and find out how many times do the psalmists say, sing, 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 sing. It's not just about words, 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 words. It's about constructing that hymn of praise and giving it to God. And here David is saying, I'm determined to sing praises before others. Let me ask you, when you give thanks to God, does it regularly cross your mind to start singing. You know, for some people, I already hear some of this, yeah, but my voice. Can I tell you something if you're a Christian? You ready for this? God loves your voice. It might grate on others, but God loves your voice. Right? God loves your voice. Perhaps 
as you gather around the Thanksgiving table this Thursday, if you've never done this before, would you choose a hymn or a short chorus and have everybody around that table sing? Some may be just doing it because you asked them to, but you do it because you made a resolve to sing praises before others, no matter how mighty they are. Well, there's a third phrase, I will bow down toward your holy temple. This, this final resolve here is, is like that which we have just seen, a resolve to praise and worship only. This resolve seeks to make sure the true object of praise is God. David says, I will bow down. The idea, I will lay myself out. I will literally get down on the ground before the temple, the dwelling place of God. What's interesting about this is David did not have an earthly temple. He had the tabernacle, but not a temple. He saw the glory of the Lord over the tent in that temple, or I mean tabernacle. And it must be that David here is resolving to make sure that all of his worship, all of his praise is always looking towards God. So wherever that Shekinah glory is, that's where he's bowing down. He's always looking towards God. It's God-directed. It should not be, wow, I really like that new song of praise, but rather, does God like that new song of praise? Because if he does, I'm going to sing it. Here we see David does not want to be distracted by lesser things. When he worships, he offers up his thanks. He wants his whole heart to be committed. He wants all around him to know that he's singing to the one true God. Great and small does not matter. And he wants his own heart to be fixed on God. It's not about what others think about my singing. It's not what others think about the words that are coming out of my mouth. It is only that which God is concerned with. In your worship, there's an audience of one and it's God, not anyone else. This is David's resolve to give thanks, to sing, and to bow down. Well, let's look at the reasons, our second point. The reasons to be thankful found in the bulk of this text. Begins in verse 2, and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Again, the main bulk of this psalm are David's expressions of, of thanks, or better put, the reasons why he gives thanks. I'm so grateful to the Lord that he provides us with examples like this, because we're like, oh, what should I thank God for? You ever been there? What should I thank God for? Well, let's look and see what godly men in the past have thanked God for and begin with that. We can look to these examples for direction. I see these verse, in these verses seven reasons for which David offers up his thanks to the Lord. To be sure, there's more than seven. Just use these as a launch board, as it were, a place to start. And let us note that these reasons, as I, uh, let us note that, that uh, we can give God the same thanks for the same things. As a final disclaimer, I'm only going to focus on the key attribute of David's thankfulness. There's much more that we can consider, but let's just start with these core, seven core reasons. And we begin with the first one. We thank God for his loving kindness. Do you thank God for his love? I give thanks to your name for your loving kindness. The first reason that's given is because of God's love. Now, the word translated here is probably one of the most significant words in the entirety of the Old Testament. It is a word that's used 240 times, and it is most frequently used in the Psalms. The psalmist loved the word loving kindness. 
Loving kindness is so rich, it is so broad, we say it's so pregnant in its meaning that we don't have enough words to encompass it all. It gets translated as loving kindness. It gets translated as mercy, compassion, goodness, steadfast love, unfailing love, faithfulness, grace, and devotion. Just throw all of that. You can see we couldn't. If it's used 240 times, you had to use all those words just to describe it. Your Bible would be twice as big. There is a sense in which if we fail, though, to consider all these ideas when we speak of the loving kindness of the Lord, we're going to fail. We're going to come up short in appreciating rightly and giving thanks to God. If you just read loving kindness and just run on like, oh, that's no big deal, you've missed the point. This is a a word that's almost meant for you to stop dead in your tracks and try to figure out which aspect of this, this Hebrew word Hased is is being intended here. Are we talking about mercy or compassion? Is this talking about the, the, in, the incredible love, the steadfast love of God? Is it all of these things? The loving kindness of the Lord speaks of God's commitment and his generosity to his people. Let me ask you, has God been generous to you? Then you're considering the loving kindness of the Lord. Of course, David has in mind both himself and the nation of Israel as the needful recipients of God's love, of God's protection and blessing. And this points to another aspect of David, what David is commenting on, and that is the truth that loving kindness is always doing, showing, or keeping something. In other words, when David says, I'm thanking you for your loving kindness, he's saying, I thank you, God, that you're always at work in my life. You've not abandoned me. You'll never leave me or forsake me. Our reading through the life of David quickly reveals that God was constantly revealing loving kindness to him, does it not? Constantly revealing grace, constantly revealing mercy and compassion and steadfast love. David pictures for us the reality of every person, namely that we all need the loving kindness of the Lord because we all need compassion. We all need redemption from sin. We all need to be saved from our enemies. We all need to be delivered from our troubles. There's not one of us that is exempt to such things. And the Lord says, if you are his, you are the recipient of that protective love. And while David surely experienced the loving kindness of the Lord in in his physical deliverance and physical salvation, not only from enemies like the Philistines, but also from his own sinful actions like those with Bathsheba, the greatest expression of loving kindness of this mercy and grace and kindness is experienced by being delivered from the full and final consequences of your sins. Jesus Christ is the loving kindness of the Lord. And this is what we read in the New Testament, isn't it? Paul writes to the Romans, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness, the loving kindness of the Lord leads you to what? Repentance. You will not be saved apart from the loving kindness of the Lord. We read in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, a similar truth, that God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, I'm going to Hebrewize this, but according to his loving kindness. Beloved, we ought to regularly and continually thank the Lord for his undeserved, kind, gracious, generous outpouring of loving kindness in our lives. 
This compassion sent his son to the earth to be our substitute for sin. This, this mercy gave Jesus to us to be our example. How often do you thank him for this and other expressions of his mercy? So we thank God for his loving kindness. We also thank God for his truth. And we give thanks to your name for your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. So we thank the Lord for his truth. The, the word truth here can speak of either the sum of what God has communicated, that is the revelation, the word of God. So when it says, I, I thank you for your truth, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you have given to me to know you by. That would be one understanding. And it can also speak of the character of God, namely that he is truth. He is absolutely truthful or faithful in all that he says and all that he does. When God gave David the, the promise of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, a promise of land and descendants to rule on a throne of his kingdom and of blessings, David had no reason to doubt or mistrust God, for even up to this point, David had been the recipient and experiencer of fulfilled promises from God. So sure, uh, so sure were the promises of God in the mind of David that he actually equates them. He equates them with the name of God saying, for you have magnified, exalted, revealed as absolutely sure your promises with accordance to who you are, with all that you've summed up in your name. You are the Lord. You are the all-powerful. You are the self-existent God who pours out grace and truth on all who believe, and David is recognizing that. I love the picture that David paints here of loving kindness and truth for coming from God. He's thanking God that he's sure of both God's love and faithfulness, of both grace and truth. In fact, I'd have you note something, that we find the Apostle John actually making this statement for us. We don't translate it this way because we're translating from the Greek into English, but we're familiar with John 1.17. And again, allow me to put in the Hebrew understanding of this. For the law was given through Moses. Sounds kind of Hebrewish to me. But then we read grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now let's put it in Old Testament lingo. Loving kindness and faithfulness were realized through Jesus Christ. So everything David is seeking to thank the Lord for, he's recognizing as it's coming in and from and will be fully realized in the God-man, Jesus Christ. How often do you thank the Lord for being the God of all grace and truth, of loving kindness and faithfulness, of the God whose truth is not mostly right, not mostly dependable, but is always right and always dependable? So while we certainly have a heaviness of heart when we hear that we were born enemies of God and spiritually dead to him because of sin, it is because we trust in the faithfulness of God and his word that we can rejoice in the good news that through Jesus Christ, enemies may be reconciled and made children, that those who were dead might be born again, born into the family of God, no longer bearing the family resemblance of Adam, our fallen sinful representative, but now bearing the family resemblance of Jesus, our risen holy representative. Let us give thanks for such a truth as that. Well, we give thanks to God, thirdly, for his answers. On verse 3, on the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. 
So here's our third reason. God is the God who hears the cries of his people. Amen? He hears our, his people, and he answers them, and he actually gives boldness to, and strength to endure, to resist, to persevere. Now, we know that David experienced times of sweet communion, closeness with God that some of us would long to have experienced. He cried, he prayed, he poured out his heart before God. But David's thankfulness was not limited to only communion with God, but he also experienced this uh, sweet communication from God. David's prayer life was never one way. And again, we spoke of this the other uh, couple of weeks ago in the sermon. We can be those who want to tell God everything, and he wants to hear, he wants to hear everything. But we can also be a people who listen very little to what he says back to us. And David wants his prayer life to be that which he hears God answer him. And what does he say? On the day that I called, on the day that I prayed, on the day that I poured out my heart to you, you, God, actually communicated with me. You spoke to my heart. I don't know if he did it audibly. I don't know if he did it through his word, but he did it. And he says, it happened quickly on the day that I called. I love the way that Matthew Henry, the great old commentator of the scriptures, put it. He said, those that trade with heaven by prayer grow rich by quick returns. You want a quick return? You want a profitable return? Then invest your prayers to God and you will be blessed. Now, this does not mean that God necessarily gave David something material or smote an enemy or immediately healed a sickness. For the answer that David seeks here, I believe, is spiritual more than material God gave to David an assurance of heart, a strength of spirit. He says a boldness of soul. God gave to David a, a, uh, God gave to David a spiritual strength and a, a resolve to stand firm in the midst of his trials, to stand against temptations. God enabled David to continue looking after uh, looking to and loving the Lord in spite of his circumstances. Here, again, David, this man after God's own heart, there was nothing more precious than knowing God had increased his faith. God had given him strength. God had supplied his needs as he cried out to him. And for this, he gives thanks. He gives thanks. David gives thanks to God, knowing that as, as he fervently cried out to God, he might not have seen the immediate tangible effects, but he knew that God would take care of him. And this is not what uh, uh, we've seen, uh, we see in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, where trials and circumstances are not always met with immediate physical relief, but they are always met with the knowledge that our faith in God will be strengthened and that faith will result in thanksgiving and praise. Notice what we read. In this, he's talking about the trials. In this, you greatly rejoice, uh, talking about our great salvation, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various what? Trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in what? Praise, thanksgiving, gratitude. You're in trials now. Your trials, your difficulties are not God bringing you down. It is God giving you the opportunity to give him thanks in spite of what is going on in the world around you. And that you may be found, they may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would pray for such a faith that results in such thanksgiving, that we'd be so spiritually aware 
to know that our very souls are being given boldness and strength to endure even the hardest of trials and will do so until Jesus returns. Well, the fourth thing, we give thanks to God for his glory. Notice verses 4 and 5. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. David speaks uh, prophetically here, does he not? Uh, This is certainly not what we see in most world governments right now. But there is a day coming when all the kings of the earth, as representatives of all the peoples on the earth, will hear and heed the word of the Lord. David sees here himself as being in a position to speak to the kings of the, of the surrounding nations, to declare to them with the loving kindness and the truth of the Lord. But there is a look to the future. As to some degree, David knew that this time of universal thanksgiving to God wasn't then. It had to be in the coming future. And we know that such a time is said to exist under the future rule and reign of our Lord Jesus Christ, David's son. This is of the millennial kingdom. Can you imagine right now the time when Jesus comes and all the kings of the earth will listen and praise the Lord? It's coming. These verses tell us that there will be a a, a judgment, a casting off of those who would not give thanks and worship to the Lord Jesus. For all the kings every tri- from every tribe, every tongue, every nation will praise the Lord Jesus when he reigns. So we find David wanting to influence others around him. And that should be our desire. I want to cause other people to give thanks to God for his glory. We look to this coming time when God is fully vindicated, when God is fully revealed in his glory. I like that David expects that all people um, would have this resolve from back in verses 1 and 2, that they're going to be giving thanks and singing praises, and there will be bowing down. These kings will give thanks to the Lord. These kings will, the peoples will sing of the ways of the Lord, and the kings and the people will bow down and worship as they perceive the glory of the Lord, even as David bowed himself down before the temple. I love the picture. Please note that there is no one worshiping here that does not want to. There are people in church today, maybe you're one of them, and you really don't want to be here. Not so in this time. But I promise you that you would want to be here in this time than where else you're going to be if you're not here. I don't know if that made sense. You can play the tape back and get that. Those who refuse to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ will never be forced to do these things. They will be doomed and cast off into the eternal torments of hell, while those who have come to Jesus, who have trusted in his work for them on the cross, have submitted themselves to him as king. These rejoice and they bask in the glory of the Lord, in the light of the Lord, in the goodness of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord. Do give thanks to God for his glory. And by the way, I said uh, um, uh, that uh, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth, loving kindness and faithfulness. When we say that we beheld his glory, the only begotten, uh, the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. That is, if you think about the Hebrew understanding, what, what, uh, what were Old Testament Jews looking forward to? The glory of the Lord returning to the temple. And they're thinking Shekinah glory. We happen to know it will be Jesus Christ. And so when we say we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, we know the king has come and he's coming again. 
He's coming again. Well, there's a fifth thing. We give thanks to God for his regard. Verse 6, for though the Lord is exalted, though he's so high and lifted up, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. So David gives thanks for this. Indeed, God is, is exalted. He needs nothing from any of his creatures. We do not contribute anything to his glory. There's nothing in us intrinsically that allows us to say, God, you're incomplete without us. We are creatures. And the only thing that we can expect is to receive benefits from him, not him receiving benefits from us. And yet out of his loving kindness, he's chosen to smile upon us, has he not? He's pleased with us to pour out his mercy on us. But who is the us? What is the qualifier? It says the Lord regards who? The lowly, the humble, the poor in spirit, those who are broken, who know they have nothing to offer God. Are you that person? Because if you are this humble, broken in spirit, you understand something. You understand your need of God. You understand the necessity of mercy. You understand that unless God acts on your behalf, you will eternally perish. The lowly are those who know that Romans 3.23 speaks of them. I have sinned and I fall short of the glory of God. The lowly are those who are like the tax collector of Luke 18 who cry out while beating his breast. Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. The lowly are those who see the beauty in the wounds and the scars of our Lord Jesus Christ. They see Jesus as being the substitute for their sins. The high and exalted one on a cross for them. Who died so that they might have life from God. These are the lowly and I ask, does this describe you? Why should I be thankful for that? Because until I can know that I'm lowly, I can never know salvation. So thank you, Lord, for making me lowly. Thank you for making me dependent upon your mercy. Thank you for helping me to know or causing me to know that you did for me what I could not do for myself. Does this cause you continual thanksgiving? Because if it does not, the alternative is that you are, according to this text, haughty. You're proud. You're arrogant. If you think there's something that you can give to God or you don't need God at all, David says, the Lord, the Lord, Lord uh, these people are, are far. They're off. The idea here is that the Lord will keep, and keep a great distance and an impassable gulf between himself and the proud. So are you thankful today for being lowly before the Lord or are you proud and confident in yourself? Well, the sixth thing, we thank God for his salvation. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. Here it is. I, I wish we had more time to develop this, but I love this verse from a spiritual perspective. For indeed, David did have physical troubles, did he not? He did have enemies from which the Lord did physically save him. But there's a spiritual truth in here as well. For indeed, all of us either have or are walking in the midst of trouble. According to the word of God, we are all conceived in sin, sinners by birth, and therefore separated from the presence of God. 
Although physically born alive, Ephesians 2 tells us, 2.1 tells us that we are what? Spiritually dead. Such a trouble is ours. But note, it is the Lord. It says the Lord revives. Even as the Lord revived, restored, and strengthened David, the Lord revives and awakens and opens our dead eyes to behold his beauty. And did not the Lord stretch forth his hand to destroy your greatest enemy, which is what? Sin and death. Did not the Lord Jesus stretch forth both hands on a cross to put to death that enemy of death for all who would believe on him? And note well in our text, note as well the reference to it being the Lord's right hand who accomplishes the salvation. And do you know who the Lord's right hand is? Jesus, who's sitting at the right hand of the Father. It is Jesus who sits there in all glory and honor and power. Let us be a people who continually thank the Lord for so great a salvation. The Lord Jesus, for the Lord Jesus has met us in our walk of trouble. He has been there for us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he delivers us safely to the other side. He's destroyed our enemies. He has saved us. He has granted us eternal life in his presence. And we should say amen and amen. Finally, we give God thanks for his accomplishments. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. This final reason for giving thanks to the Lord is that he is a God who accomplishes whatever concerns us. David has as his assurance that whatever good work God has begun in and for his people, it will be performed. I love the King James. It reads this way. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. That is the Old Testament equivalent to our often cited New Testament verse. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will what? Perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Beloved, are you so confident and believe that whatever is most needful to you, the Lord will do what is best? Can you give thanks for that? So often we are consumed by the many things that really are not our biggest concerns. We might be consumed with concern over getting our computer working right or uh, while the Lord is working on the hearts and minds, our minds being right. But God will accomplish those things that concern us. And part of that is simply God reminding us of our greatest concern. And do you know what the greatest concern of your heart ought to be? That I might know and love the Lord God all the more that I might know the Lord God to love him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. This is what God's at work in us. Do you see, this at work God, do you see God working this in you? A work that is motivated by the steadfast and everlasting love of God? Are you thankful that even while you might stumble at times, it's the Lord that's always bringing you through? We talk about trying to drag candidates across the finish line so that they might win their office. Do you know that God's going to get you over the finish line? And there's no question about it. Are you thankful for that? Do you see God changing your heart in the concerns that you do have? Can you give him thanks that while you get distracted with lesser things, he yet brings back to your mind the greatest thing for which you ought to be concerned, that you might know him? Well, this brings us to the final point very quickly, the request to be thankful. I love this statement. It seems so simple. Do not forsake the work of your hands. How is that a request? 
Having considered the reasons why we might offer thanksgiving to God, notice David's final statement is actually, it is a request. It is a petition. He says, do not forsake the work of your hands. It may seem strange to us until we realize that we have a natural tendency to move away from God. Beloved, we give the Lord more than enough reasons to forsake us every day. I'm giving you reasons to be thankful to God. God could, if he were this way, could compose a list just from today that says, here are the reasons why I should forsake you today. God is always, however, faithful to us, even when we are unfaithful. God always expresses perfect love and devotion to us, even when we, at our best, demonstrate imperfect love. And while David is assured of the steadfast and unfailing love of God for him, he is yet humble and says to the Lord, please do not forsake the work of your hands. I am your work. I am your workmanship. I've been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you have prepared in advance that I'd walk in them. You do this in my life. David cannot be thankful on his own, he's saying. If I'm left to myself, I will fail. And so he says, do not forsake me. Do not cast me aside. Do not leave me alone. I am the work of your hands. Beloved, are you thankful for whatever good there is in us? Do you know that it's the work of God in you? It is God who works in us both to will and to do. If the Lord would forsake his work, you and I would utterly fail. But for his glory, the Lord as this perfecting God, he is so concerned in the progress of our lives becoming conformed to the image of his son, we can pray this prayer of David, Lord, do not forsake the work of your hands. Let us thank the Lord for those whom he loves and he loves to the end and for God who is perfecting his work in us. Beloved, daily we are invited to celebrate God, to thank him for inviting us to be his children, the recipient of his grace and mercy. Daily we ought to be thanking him for such things as these and echo the words of Anne Steele who said, Father, whate'er of earthly bliss thy sovereign will denies, except at thy throne of grace let this petition rise. Give me a calm and thankful heart from every murmur free the blessings of thy grace impart and make me live to thee. Let us be a thankful people, giving all the glory and praise to God who has so graciously given us all things for life and godliness in his son Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for these words of thanksgiving and all we can ask is that you would enable us to be such a people. Do not forsake the work of your hands, but let us increasingly demonstrate that we are a thankful people, that we have a calm, thankful heart, that we murmur not because we know that you work all things for the good to those who love you and who are called for your purposes. We thank you in Jesus' name.